From SBJ Podcasts, I'm Christine Temple, and this is CEO Roundtable. Each month, we gather around the table with a different group of Springfield business leaders to discuss company operations, workforce, and industry trends. Join us as we get a behind-the-scenes look into our business community from the C-Suite. CEO Roundtable by SBJ Podcasts is presented by Spencer Fain, LLP. We'll be right back. With a team of 30 attorneys and other business professionals, the Spencer Fain Springfield office assists clients on a wide range of legal issues. We provide an unconventional approach to legal services geared toward protecting and advancing business and personal interests. With roots in Missouri, tracing back to 1879, Spencer Fain is now one of the largest 200 law firms in the country. Today, the firm boasts more than 400 lawyers and serves clients nationwide from 22 offices in 12 states. Thank you all so much for joining me this month. Um, we're talking technology, and I'm joined by three panelists. Mike Bates, CEO and co-founder of Hero Technologies. Miranda Provance, Director of Development at Mostly Serious. Samaria Stogner, Senior Manager of Technology Services at Jack Henry and Associates. Thank you all so much for being here. So um, you all represent different sectors of the tech industry. Can you talk about some of the advancements in your field that are most impacting your work? Yeah, I think this is probably happening across all the sectors, but AI is definitely the big thing that stands out. Uh, it's being talked about all the time. People are trying to find the best ways to integrate it into their workflows. We do trainings, AI trainings at Mostly Serious, and we've had a lot of interest from companies looking for custom training specific to their employees and how they can best utilize across their company. That's awesome. Uh, so AI in, in the space that Hero is in is pretty interesting, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot today from you guys because I would say as far as AI goes, I've been a little bit of a curmudgeon as far as like, I get it. I, I mean, GPT hit the scene, and it's like the most incredible thing on the face of the earth, right? It's It's awesome, but I can't help but be bothered a little bit by just the... Uh, the oversaturation and the buzzwordiness of, you know, AI and everything. So, like, I feel like I've just naturally been a little bit on the outside of learning it, but went through an exercise in the past week or so when we've been uh, applying for a grant. And uh, hmm, it's about, I mean, I've been using ChatGPT for, you know, well over a year now, but seeing the capabilities in, like, that custom GPT realm that's so huge and like so for me i feel like i'm like a year late to the party going yeah i totally see i totally see this but the yeah just the just everyone's response to it is just kind of uh chaotic right now and just like you know ai everywhere it's a, it's a little it's a little silly at times but its purpose obviously undeniably huge so i'm excited to learn some about how you all been using it you know internally within your org AI has definitely been one of those impacting conversations, but I think even more specifically for my sector, we've, um, we've had some challenges with the acceleration of digital transformation. So when you think about how, uh, personal service and experiences have accelerated towards self-service with our industry. So thinking about financial services providers, the more that digital transformation was adopted in the financial fintech services area, as well as, uh, just banking, we started to um, see fragmentation happening. And so we found that 20 to 30 different accounts are being managed by each individual American consumer. And so all of that is triggered from this digital transformation. We're experiencing fragmentation. 20 to 30 accounts per person. So we're talking about banking, uh, checking, savings, investments, uh, business management, personal account management, all of those different things um, could be associated to one individual human walking in America. And so generally, I would say the self-service, the obsession for self-service um, drove this big digital transformation opportunity, and then that created fragmentation in our marketplace. So that fragmentation then made it even more challenging for our consumers to see a complete picture of their financial portfolio. So I definitely digital transformation, um, just that whole mantra that's happening in technology has 
kind of been a bit of a challenge for us. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. I'm blown away by the 20 to 30 account thing. That's, that's it's just big. in wow. finance, like just for financial tools. Yes. Yeah. Uh, check out your... Um, got like four. <laughs> really, no, check out your personal portfolio. If you're managing an IRA or oh, a 401k sure. account or you're managing stocks, you know, all of that stuff adds up. And potentially we have the ability to select different financial services or different providers for each of those pieces of our portfolios. Yeah, every time, like if you get a mortgage over here, maybe your car loan over here, yes. those things really add up. It does add yeah. up to approximately 20 to 30 different accounts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and does that, like, you're talking about digital transformation to fintech, does that empower consumers to continue diversifying because they see the opportunity something's marketed to them get a you know money market account with five percent return here and absolutely okay absolutely okay. Huh. there's also like pay services like venmo or paypal or sure. cash app you know person to person payments yeah it definitely allows us as consumers of financial services here in america to select whatever we want and Within my industry, we're specifically servicing small and community banks and credit unions. So we want them to stay innovative and competitive whenever their consumers have the ability to select all these different options. Hmm. So yeah. while all of us are counting up our accounts, because <laughs> we're all doing that right now, right? Um, I want to go back to AI just a bit because it does seem like um, – the self-service kind of uh, digital transformation that you're talking about, AI is allowing more of that too, right? Like people are getting access to more information and they're able to do more themselves with this co-pilot type technology. Um, can you talk about the ways that Mike, you know, you mentioned the grant writing. So, but Miranda, you might have more specifics too on how you've seen businesses utilize AI and what you kind of see as maybe some opportunities in the future as well. Yeah, so what we're seeing a lot with our customers and actually working on some projects with current customers is um, providing ways for their customers, maybe a segment of their customers, maybe a segment of their employees, to ha be able to use a, a chat GPT style communication that knows their documents. So we've talked to companies about this in the realm of HR, you know, big companies, big corporations that have a lot of policies, a lot of documentation, um, and have a hard time staffing enough people to manage support calls for their employees. Uh, providing a um, customized ChatGPT style uh, bot that allows, that knows their policies, that knows their HR documents, and people could maybe start there first. Uh, again, pointing back to that desire to, to self-service. Those are the kinds of things that we're hearing about a lot and talking about with a lot of our clients. So essentially, the, um, the the AI bot will just learn from specific information that you feed it. Yes. So you can ask, like, how many sick days do I get in my second year of employment? Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. And then on the customer-facing side, too, um, if you uh, – so we're working with some visitors' bureaus, and um, – they want to give people a tool to be able to plan their trip in the area that they serve, the area they're promoting. And so we can feed it um, the document specifically on that visitor bureau site and allow the person to get a much better response than they would just going to a straight chat. ChatGPT, or even just using the web browsing. And then it also helps that business Point, re point that person back to resources on their site and businesses, potentially businesses that they've promoted and have deals with. On the, on the grant side, it's been an eye-opening experience because obviously we know a lot about our business um, and, you know, all of that and our technology and where we want to head with it. But, you know, we don't know anything about grants. Don't know the, like when to sit down to start drafting even like a proposed, like a draft, right? Just let's get some thoughts on paper here. And uh, I couldn't. Like, I just sat there and stared at it. Like, I don't even know the first, obviously, about the company, right? But after that, like, I don't know what's a put. And so, just like Miranda was saying, I, I don't know how new this feature is in ChatGPT. Like, uh, uh, some other folks didn't know it existed, and somebody showed it to me, and that's the MyGPT feature. I don't know how new this is, but it's exactly like what Miranda said, is you create a new GPT and you feed it documents. So I had a number of documents, right? We have like 
our device sheet with all the product information. We've got information about the company. We've got websites we can point it to, and you basically just feed it this information so it learns specifically only the thing that you're telling it about, right? Like that's what it's really keyed on. So then once you've done that, then you just start interacting with it. And so you don't have to worry about providing a prompt like, we're Hero out of Springfield, Missouri, and we focus on XYZ. There's a grant in Ohio that we want to apply. Like, it's already in there, so you just get right down to business with it. And so I was able to just really craft up a very strategic prompt knowing nothing about grants, right? But I gave it the request for proposal, all the information about the company, and it spit out a really good draft of it. Obviously, you're not going to use that and just turn it in. But it took what would have taken me probably weeks or at least several nights, jump-started it in about an hour or two worth of work, and now, less than a week later, we're going to submit that grant today. Uh, no idea if we'll get it. This is our first time doing anything like this. But, I mean, if we do get it, that's a hell of a picture to paint of what, you know, air quotes AI uh, does, right? And, and I air quote it. I'm generally kind of curious, too, like, AI... How do you guys even define it? Like, how do you say what, how do you not define it, but how do you even describe it? Because I feel like everyone has a different definition of what it is. And therefore it's not doing anything great for the conversation when you're referring to nebulous ideas. So I'm curious, like Miranda, what, how would you describe AI? Yeah, well, I, I think in what we're seeing right now at ChatGPT and other um, kind of chat-based bots, they're generative AI. So they're generating words, they're generating images, videos now, um, and basically piecing together patterns that it has learned from receiving millions and maybe trillions of, of documents from the Internet uh, as they've been trained. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really important, right, to, to know that it's um, generating based on patterns that it's seen before. And we're still not to the point, of course, uh, of the AI that we've seen in um, science fiction, right? Yes. It's not making its own autonomous decisions um, in, at some very small level, right? It feels like it is, um, but we're still uh, not to that that point. And so I, I, I do think find it helpful to call it generative AI. Right. I do too. Yeah. I also agree with yeah. that. Um, that gives us a little bit better contextual awareness of what we're talking about when we talk about the generative AI. But from my 17 years of experience, I think AI has been a while, around a while in the form of like system engineering and automation, you know, uh, and scripting the, the, when we script our operations and make it do mundane tasks for us so that we're no longer spending human time doing that. We can spend our time doing more innovative things for our business. Um, so I do think there, it, it is important, Mike, for us to define what we're talking about when we're talking about AI, because there are so many different variations of what AI could be. Yeah. And uh, the, my biggest concern is just the boogeyman aspect of it, right? Like people are freaking out and it's highly accelerated. So obviously that makes sense. Right. But like people, uh, I mean, you know, it's coming after jobs and yeah, there probably are some that it's coming after, but like we've been through this before. We've been through an industrial revolution. Like we've seen jobs get replaced by technology. And I feel like as incredible as this is, it might not be, you know, as scary as, as you know, people make it out to be right now. It's helping us a ton, right? It, the grant thing alone, right? Like that's just one anecdotal experience. I'm sure you've all seen it, you know, time and time again, like it removes that cruft from your work and lets you get down to like truly making change instead of writing code that does like form validation stuff over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. It helps fill in, fill in the gaps, uh, of some things you might not have experience with yet, like grant writing. Most of us don't have experience with that. <laughs> Shout and out to the grant writers. Yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> it's a superpower, right? Yeah, well, hey, we still need you. Don't worry. Like, yes, and I'm sure that, uh, don't worry, I don't think uh, a gener generative AI right. can compete with yes. a professional grant writing. So. Right. You'll have to let us know if you get that grant, though. Oh, so yes. we Trust can, me. We can understand uh, the quality This area of that. will know about it. Uh, <laughs> like we're, we're, yeah, we have no idea. But if we get it, yeah, it's going to be huge. We're excited. So, yeah. Excited for you. Yes. Hopefully you get it. 
So how has um, the, maybe the, the generative AI uh, impacted Jack Henry? That is a very good question. Um, Jack Henry is a fin technology company, and we have over three different software pro- uh, products that we've created and we provide. So I have to kind of narrow this down into like one specific area, kind of to your, your point. What are we actually talking about? There are, are numerous examples where we talk about how Jack Henry specifically is leveraging you, AI or even machine learning. Um, but I think one really cool um use of AI in Jack Henry is for cybersecurity. So it's helping us understand unusual patterns of behavior. It's helping us scan networks for any kind of vulnerabilities that might exist. And I guess in a nutshell, it's helping us manage um, risk and uh, incidents. So there's a there's a lot of opportunity with AI and just uh, threat detection and then remediation. So it could be um, even to the point where it identifies an anomaly, but it's outside of its normal behavior. And we've uh, we've programmed the AI to resolve the anomaly uh, in a self-service manner, an automated manner. So I want to talk maybe about some of the barriers um to using AI. So uh, the larger the company, the more likely they are to already be adopting AI, according to just um, research on adoption. Um, but IBM said um, about 42% of companies over a thousand employees are using it. Another 40% are exploring it. But they talked about barriers, including hiring employees with the right skill set to use the technology, the complexity of the data, and then ethical concerns. And then Mike, you also alluded to the boogeyman factor and the uncertainty of these things. So um, can you talk about some of the barriers? Because you guys are, 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 are tech folks, right? But yes. the, the <laughs> but maybe what seems um, so accelerated and you, and you point out correctly that AI has been around, but now it's available to a layperson and someone that's not within that tech field. So talk about some of the barriers to utilization on like maybe the non tech side and what are some of the, um, what are some of the solutions that you guys see with that? I think, again, I said earlier, I'm kind of on the outside, certainly not on the outside. I just haven't been freaking out about it as much as, as others. And maybe that's wrong. Um, but the key to a good output from this generative AI. And if anyone's listening to this and doesn't really know, like we say the word generative AI, if you don't know what that means, I mean, Miranda did a great job of explaining it, but just imagine you can input text like you do in a Google, right? So you're doing a Google search. You, you are either going to type in like a location or a thing that you want to find, or maybe you might find that you fall back to a little bit more of the ask Jeeves mentality where you're actually asking Google a question. Think, uh, think of interacting with chat GPT or generative AI in a very similar fashion. You are inputting information, which you'll hear in the industry referred to as a prompt. So you're prompting that generative AI machine, which is generally going to be chat GPT. Um, there's all these letters and words and Jesus. Um, but, uh, you, the better the prompt that you provide that, the more detail that you give it about the thing that you're looking for, the better output you're going to get out of that. And then knowing that you can iterate on that. So when it comes back and says, uh, here's how to, here's the best way to go about starting a restaurant and like whatever you've asked it, right. You can then refine on that. So you can be like, yeah, but what if, um, I don't have that much money and I need to get a loan. Like, you know, maybe what banks in the area should I be looking, you know, to that work with small businesses. And like, you can further refine that and it remembers what you were talking about. So as opposed to a Google search, which you just type in, and then you're like, shit, that didn't bring up anything. Type it in again, find another thing. This you keep living on. And and that's what that generative AI is. It's absorbed content across the web as a whole. And then it is, I don't know how they're doing it, but my Lord, does it spit out good stuff. And and so that's that boogeyman nature that like nobody, you say AI and people are like, they don't know. They don't know what it is, right? But when you break it down and you show like this thing is just taking text that it knows about information you've prompted it with and spitting you out stuff spitting you out. And I would say, honestly, you talked about like the video and the, the images. I think that's truly the, that is the area that I think is a bit boogeyman. Talk about it. You guys, I mean, I am sure we know deep fakes. I mean, like whatever, that's the boogeyman area. I think politics, just everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you've already, even way early on, we already saw some things go viral, some generated images go viral on the Internet, and people for a day or two thought it was real, like the Pope wearing a a puffy jacket, right? Looking real sharp. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that, you know, that fooled a big swath of people for a, a few days. So, yeah, I definitely think that there is some reason to be concerned there, you know, and we'll, we'll have to, as a society, keep an eye on it. Um, but in terms of your question about barriers to entry for generative AI, outside of knowledge, knowing it's there, being able to just sign up, it's actually, people might not realize, you don't, it's at the point where you don't need to have any technical skills. And creating a good prompt, in my opinion, is really just using good communication. So Mike pointed to this, but you it would essentially just pretend you're asking an expert uh, in the field something, but they can't bring knowledge out of nowhere, right? You still have to be very specific about your backstory that helps that person know where you're coming from. Uh, and then be very specific about the type of answer you're looking for. But I don't think it takes anything special outside of normal communication. That being said, well, I think there's a really low barrier uh, of entry to use for the layperson. I do think as businesses, we we need to put some barriers back up. Um, and, And not a ton, but simple things like, People need to know not to put personal information into the system. Um, Names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses. Better just keep that abstract and vague uh, because we are now seeing reports of um, ChatGPT and other platforms having some of those chats leaked and indexed in Google. Now they've been removed. Yes. I've been waiting for this. I didn't (laughs) know it actually happened. Um, Also bear in mind, too, that, you know, if you make... If you make your chat public and you share it, like there's a greater chance of that stuff getting out there. But regardless of whether you make it public or um, if if you don't, best just to keep any personal private information of you or anyone else you're talking about. Uh, just don't use actual real information for people. And then Mike pointed to this earlier too, but you don't, generally speaking, you're still not going to just copy paste and use what, what your output is. It does take human review. It does need um, editing, proofreading, especially if you're talking about code, right? (laughs) Um, Or something active like that. Uh, And that's where you still need an expert's eye to be able to, to proofread and validate that what you're getting out of the platform is good. I agree with Miranda. The uh, barrier to entries are pretty entry level right now. So pretty minor. Um, It's just a matter of trying it out for anyone, whether you're a tech person or a non-tech person. Um, For businesses, however, I think that their barriers will be with their workforce. If their workforce is not upskilling or reskilling to um, understand AI and ML technologies, then they might fall behind. And if they're not upskilling and reskilling their workforce, their business most likely is falling behind on innovation and offering their services to their marketplace. So there, I think there are some barriers for businesses if they're not focusing on their current workforce or maybe even their recruiting processes if they're not recruiting uh, technologists that already have those skill sets or not. so. But I do think the primary uh, concern would be current workforce and are they uh, developing and are they working to upskill to gain those new skills so that they can drive innovation in the businesses and then in our marketplaces. Hmm. So when you look at the use of AI in, in my industry, so in media, transparency is really critical in how AI is being utilized and what it's being utilized for. Um, are you seeing that in other industries? Are, are businesses, um, you know, being really transparent with their customers about how they utilize AI or, sh- or should they when these ethical concerns are a barrier? That's a good question. I don't, that's I can't I say thinking. that that's I've seen question. any company that's like, hey, we use AI and we use it this way. I don't think I've seen that. Um, okay. If that's, I think, the gist of the question. Yeah. I've not seen it. Yeah, you? I haven't either. <laughs> it's no. so stinking new, though, too, that like, yeah. <laughs> at least the explosion of it, like, 
That's a good question. Mm-hmm. So it is a great question, and it's one that our customers like to ask us. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so, um, to give you some perspective, and and they can use this to sell their services to to consumers of America, and it's really like uh, describing to them that we're doing we're using AI, for example, as we used earlier, their cybersecurity threats and detection. We're using it for anomaly detection. We're using it for predictive analytics, uh, for phishing detection automated responses. So uh, when you want to message your financial institution and you want to use the chat feature, um, we're using it for vulnerability management and all of these different areas. I could dive into specifically how we're using them, but because we use it as a full stack AI platform, we're able to basically educate our customers who are financial institutions of America, and they're able to describe that to consumers. I don't know about you all, but I like knowing that my financial institution is watching and detecting for fraud on my accounts and that they have an immediate reaction to that. And their immediate reaction is most likely in place because of a technology like Jack Henry or one of our competitors are offering them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm, I'm thinking now about the consumer facing products or even some of the, you know, B2B products that we use, uh, like Asana and Notion. They're all boasting mm. and selling their AI features. Everyone right? is. <laughs> Everyone's got the AI. But at like a small business level, I don't know if people are like telling their clients, I use ChatGPT to write this email or this blog post, or I use ChatGPT to help me figure out how to solve this problem. I don't know. I don't think it's happening as much at that level on the small business scale. But definitely the big companies that provide software are boasting about their features big time. And there's good reason to. Um, so to switch gears a little bit off AI, Mike, you'll be so sad because oh, you yeah. just love talking about this. <laughs> AI, but... <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, yeah, whatever. I, it's, it's awesome. Don't get yes. me wrong. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yes. But it was a Deloitte always puts out a tech, tech trends report. And so for 2024, they talked about this com- concept of spatial computing and the web 3.0. Um, can you talk about this, what this tech means? So it's like incorporating AR and VR. Tell you guys, explain what this tech is please on the potential for business weren't we on web 4.0 now like i didn't know that we skipped (laughs) 3.0 like hey and that terminology uh, didn't necessarily resonate with me like it was oh my gosh does the spatial computing spatial computing (laughs) yes so i mean i think we're this is a hot topic right now because of apple releasing the vision pro which is their new ar vr headset and of course they're leaning much more into the augmented reality or AR side of things and um, really focusing on potential productivity gains to be able to just like essentially pull up a laptop screen anywhere you have your goggles, right? Um, and so I think that's what we're talking about here. I think this this is a little harder to predict. <laughs> like AI just came onto the scene and took over so fast, right? Everybody's <laughs> like, what, talking about it. Years ago. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you do have a lot there are still huge barriers in that space because uh, that Vision Pro is expensive. It's not necessarily comfortable. Um, I know, know uh, people who have bought one and uh, they said they could spend, they were able to wear it for four hours one day, you know, that, and it didn't feel uncomfortable. But when people first put it on and they're not used to it, they might be able to go 30 minutes without their vision or their head feeling off from the weight of the, the device and the straps. Um, so right now there are still huge barriers to that becoming a very large space, both being in cost and actual like comfortability of the device. And of course, even though they're trying to do this thing where it can kind of like project your, your face or your eyes back out, it is still odd, right? (laughs) And, uh, it's going to be a minute. You're going to have to get down to I think something more like the old Google Glass before uh, adoption really picks up heavily, heavily and it becomes like the iPhone where everybody has a smartphone within the span of five to ten years. Do you guys think that happens? With with AR, with this yeah. like Vision Pro stuff? Yeah. I can't tell. I don't know. They have to make it smaller, yeah. you know, and, and they have to make it more affordable. Yeah. Will it happen? Yes. It will will happen. It's a timing thing. It's a timing thing because we've already imagined 
it happening first. Um, we've already created the idea and the imagery in our head to some extent. So it's just a matter of developing it and reiterating this current prototype that Apple has released. Um, but I think that there's like these, there's these really awesome dreams that people have about virtual reality or augmented reality and really making them feel like they're immersed in the technology without necessarily having the screen be their method for being immersed into it. So will it happen? Yes. At what timeline? I don't know, but think about the timeline of the internet. Yeah. It happens yeah. so damn fast. Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. it's crazy. Do you think we'll see the prominence of whatever we want to call it, AR, VR, mixed reality, whatever? Do you think we'll see like the the prevalence of that before we turn seventy, eighty? Yes. Like, yeah, okay. I, I think so too. Interesting. So yeah. it's in this generation. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, but w- define spatial computing, though, because it's more than just <laughs> get out the, the chat GPT. <laughs> I got this. One. I got this. Okay, one. Yeah. Yes. I was prepared. So, spatial I'm computing curious. is the fascinating realm of digital and physical worlds converging. So, it's allowing users to interact with computers in a more seamless manner and in a more immersive way. And instead of being confined to their computer screens, like I mentioned, these techniques are perceived by the users as taking place in their actual real-world reality. So it makes it feel like you're literally living in the technology. So is it safe to say then basically um, spatial computing is basically the, the, the computing the term for the computing power that fuels augmented reality, basically. I think yes. so. Okay. Yeah. I, think, I think that's a... There's some words. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then Web3 comes into play with spatial computing because it's supposed to be less barriers as yeah. the current version wait, of the wait. internet. Do you have internet going right now? Yes. Google Google <laughs> Web 3.0. I swear that was linked in, in like lock and step with, uh, you know, the... Jeez, uh, uh, I forget the... the the currency, the, Bitcoin. the the bitcoins and the like. I thought and the the ledger. Like I thought, Web three was really all about like this ledgerized um, log of you know transactions on the internet. So like we can do you know we can vote for president via you know uh, the ledger. I can, God, I can't even remember what it's called. The bitcoin. What the hell? Is Blockchain, the Blockchain technology. Blockchain. Yes. It's so far out of the lexicon anymore. People yeah. hardly even know. So I thought but that's what Web 3.0 was. Maybe it's oh, been co-opted. Banking shit. We're talking to the bank over here. <laughs> it's yeah, not, but it's not. Yeah. Um, all right. So I did Google right. it. Web 3.0. It's also known as the the semantic web. It represents the next evolution of the internet, and it says it's a fascinating concept that combines blockchain technology, decentralized architecture, so we think about cloud computing and public clouds, and artificial intelligence to create a more user-centric <laughs> online experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how's Web 3.0 going? Like, what a weird definition. I mean, all these things are happening, so I guess Yeah, yeah, I guess era, it is kind right? of going. It's decentralization, it's <laughs> okay. personalization, it's immersive technology, it's token-driven economy, um, it's better search engine and it's improved operations is what it claims to yeah, be. So. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's I, my take on it is Web 3.0 was a term that was really popular about mm, two, three years ago. And then now it's just <laughs> like, I don't know, words and labels and stuff like whatever. Like, yeah. It doesn't mean much to me. I get what yeah, it's generally no, referring to, but I had to. Yeah. I had to look Do it you up. remember? Oh, so how long? Oh, I'm ass ages here. Does anybody <laughs> remember Web 2.0? Not really. Yeah. No. Not by that definition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you Google it, I think you're probably going to find like basically I think it's generally referred to as like the MySpace era and like as the web social networks, social kind of. networks, and also aesthetic. So it was really kind of like those rounded buttons and mm. shadows started coming into the web. So it was really kind of that aesthetic that really paved the way for the term web 2.0 and then when 3.0 came along with all the bros and their you know uh, shit on twitter and like uh no part of that but (laughs) but so to the future of looking at the spatial computing can you give me an example of what that might look like for like a business oh i would love to so think about this is this is just a idea that's in my head and I know it will be created at some point because we're technologists and the the humans that walk this earth were innovators. So um this kind of technology, imagine imagine your experience going into a bank branch 
and what that's like today. You're going in, you're meeting with the teller or a loan officer. It's face to face. You're filling out paperwork. You're signing a stack of papers or, you know, that kind of stuff. With this kind of technology, it would be as if you're just sitting at home, maybe even on your couch. You're not even at a desk in a home office or anything. You're sitting on a couch and you're having this this interaction with the augmented reality person. It's not even necessarily a real human because by that point, the human behaviors and the emotions and the connections have been developed through artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies so that it makes it feel like we're actually in engaging with a real human or maybe even the teller experience. Um, have you all seen over on West Sunshine, the Great Southern Bank branch that's just all that virtual new, tellers? Yeah, that thing's yeah. Like crazy shape and everything. Yeah, yeah, that is one version of artificial intelligence right here in our own community with these virtual teller concepts. But I could imagine it even being beyond that to where you don't even have to go to a physical location. You can put on your Google Lens or whatever it might be, your Apple Vision Pro, and you literally just close your bank loan right there in a virtual reality session. I also um, just organically heard about an example in training uh, just recently when I was going through Leadership Springfield Program Day. Uh, So hospitals around here already uh, put a lot of resources into creating real-life simulation labs. So they have these, um, you know, life-size uh, dummies, kind of like robots, essentially. Some of them uh, even like make facial expressions, and there's a human currently that talks through them. Um, but they have like kind of realistic looking skin that can be like poked and prodded. They can breathe, you know, they show that they're breathing. Yeah, they're very wild. Um, and they also, in these simulation rooms, are uh, simulating real life scenarios too. like sometimes it's someone's uh, home or a dorm room where there's uh, beer bottles and everything, you know, scattered everywhere. They really try to like recreate the full emotional experience that say an EMT would uh, encounter when they're visiting and and, um, um, getting to uh, a situation. Um, And they said that they already see the potential with AR to take that even further to uh, use um, augmented reality, mixed reality to create a full soundscape and to maybe like build a bigger picture. Like maybe it's an outdoor scenario and it allows them to feel like the walls aren't there and they're like fully outside uh, in a parking lot or wherever. Um, so I do think there's going to be a lot of potential for that uh, mixed reality stuff and spatial computing in training for sure, and that businesses will be seeking to get on top of that. Yeah, one of the things we're keenly keeping an eye on, especially with this with Apple's new headset, which I mean is an engineering feat. It's incredible. This thing. Have Have any of you worn one yet? I have, I have not. There's yeah. one at the office, but I haven't. I've had really busy. You weeks. have one at the office, yeah. and you haven't worn it. <laughs> I'm know. coming over. Uh, yeah, you should. <laughs> yeah, okay. You should. Yes. <laughs> we'll try it together. Yes. There we go. <laughs> oh my gosh, that thing's incredible. Um, and like, I'm sure we all watched the keynote and stuff when when it was unveiled. And one of the things that I find the most fascinating is that really that sensory stuff you were just talking about, kind of that that visual. They showed like, I mean, one of the things that very grossly very few people know is what a um completely unpolluted night sky looks like uh with with no light pollution um and seeing the stars and the milky way galaxy like it's insane um and they they used a very similar uh kind of imagery of like immersing yourself in an environment that like you're just never in right so exploring you know even deep into the cosmos like what does that look like to just be engulfed by something like that from a visual and even auditory perspective. And uh, that kind of stuff I think is going to be really interesting, especially as it relates not only to just a fascinating experience, but perhaps like neurological issues um, and Alzheimer's and being able to, um, you know, slow that process. I think there's a lot of cognitive things that we're going to start finding with this technology that, that really starts to help aid in some of those areas. And so, you know, a hero uh, we've got a very uh, keen interest in, in keeping up on that, and, and it could be interesting, interesting times. 
But do you see implications within your business of caregiver support? Absolutely. Oh, okay. yeah. So, I mean, hey, I've been dogging on, like, you know, this idea of AI, you know, this, and that's just me being like, hey, let's cool with the buzzwords. Let's talk reality of what this stuff is. Uh, so don't give it, don't, don't take that for a, a knock on, you know, what we're referring to as AI. So, absolutely. So, um, what we build at Hero, we already do a pretty good job of delivering notifications, what, what you'd kind of, typically referred to outside of an AI era as like anomaly detection, uh, which is simply just, hey, we've got a lot of data here. So like in Hero's uh, system, we've got activity about uh, their you know front door usage, their bed usage, refrigerator, and just all of these lifestyle activities that when something spikes in there, it's at least worth noting to the care provider that, hey, something's different here. Maybe nothing, maybe silly, but you might check in on it, right? Um, and then we're working on a other couple of really uh, advanced areas of, of how to apply this. And uh, without you know telling too much about it, wh- what we're hoping to be able to do is to start prompting um, the care providers for routines that are recognized. Uh, so basically, um, when you see events like, well, there was motion in the hallway leading to the bathroom, the bathroom was utilized, motion back in the hallway, into the bedroom, bed occupied and in there for a set amount of time. That could very clearly, um, if it's done enough times with enough repetition around the same amount of, you know, time frames, very clearly could be, well, they're getting ready for bed and they're in bed. So being able to, like, encapsulate a series of events and, and show that to the care provider um, that, hey, we've established, you know, we think this pattern here, uh, you know, is this accurate? Is this bedtime? Do you want to label it as such? Uh, so kind of that smart version of that. Uh, while also giving them control to kind of do their own so that they can see that same data and select basically a series of events and kind of in a very easy way, I know this sounds very technical, but in a very easy way, start to train the system to like look out for, you know, these types of events. So our system already does very concrete events. You want to know when the door was open, the bed unoccupied after midnight, that might be because they're leaving the home right? in elopement. Um, they can already set that up, um, but you really have to think about those scenarios, right? You have to think about like, what am I, what am I trying to protect against? What is this individual's needs? You know, how do I set up uh, these automations to receive notifications and affect some other, you know, lights in the home, whatever. But when you can use AI to kind of bring that to the forefront of like, here's some changes, here's some patterns, it really makes the system work for you. Um, and and like in our case for Hero, now a family can you know start utilizing this, or a provider agency can start using it, and it's already working for them. About like you didn't have to configure this; we've already kind of started figuring it out for you. So there's huge implications there um, that that we are uh, figuring out. We've already figured out some of it. Um, look forward to uh, hiring a data scientist at some point to to really help us, you know, figure that out. Uh, but thankfully, there's enough tools out there that's making the job at least, you know, somewhat easy for a group of engineers to figure out. So, so the buzzword, sorry, the buzzword that uh, comes to mind for that description, Mike, is machine learning, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes, yeah. ML. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. Because Hero is essentially using technology to allow people to live at home with monitoring capabilities, either by a family or a loved one or a care provider agency. She did a better job than me. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like the difference of the machine learning is that like before where one thing was a data point, now there's like analysis to it. Here's the thing that's been going on for quite a while. It's not anything like AI that's, that's, you know, but the, the prevalence of AI over the past couple of Uh years has exploded the scene with tools that make our jobs even easier to make that a reality as opposed to having to go to, you know, six to eight years of schooling to learn, you know, like that Mm. deep, deep, deep stuff. Now there's enough tools out there because the AI revolution that allows, you know, moderately smart people uh, to, to like really use that same superpower. Hmm. So let's talk about workforce um, because uh, there's a shortage. Um, there's a t- poll last year from MIT Technology Review said 64% of their respondents, um, the global tech leaders that they surveyed, said that their candidates lack necessary skills or experience. And then 56% cite um, just a shortage in candidates overall. So, um, what impacts are you seeing on that? You know, just in our region, as far as the 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 talent pool, um, and have you seen solutions that have been effective? 
Um, so I would say there's definitely an impact. I think most of the economy, unless you're in like Silicon Valley where they, they're like the grandfathers of technology, um, we're probably all facing these types of technical uh, talent challenges. And so, um, like I said earlier, the current workforce needs to be upskilled and reskilled. There's tons of resources available. You can literally find all kinds of online free resources to learn AI techniques and technology. Um, a lot of the big tech companies, Google, AWS, Microsoft, provide those trainings as well, uh, even to the degree of getting credential certified and your knowledge and skill set with those types of skills. Um, but generally, I think there is a talent shortage. The shortage has been in place for for a few years now, I would say, probably the last decade, we've had a tech talent shortage. Um, in my research, this is a topic I'm very passionate about because um, I feel that that shortage in tech talent in, in my own department that I manage, um, but also just generally analyzing technology across the industry and across the nation. Um, we have a hiring problem, I feel. The hiring problem is is that more than 60% of U.S. Americans that are working age don't have a four-year college degree. But a lot of our tech positions across the United States, over 60% of those require a four-year college degree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're automatically eliminating more than 60% of working Americans just by putting a minimum qualification of a four-year degree. On top of that, in technology, the education uh, pathway is a lot different. It's not necessarily what you learned four years ago or what you obtained in a four-year degree 20 years ago when you entered into your profession. It's not relevant anymore. So those four-year degrees... Um, they don't necessarily apply to the same skill sets that are needed for technologists. Technology has a shelf life of about five years, um, so it becomes obsolete. And when you're learning technology through a four-year degree program, you're learning obsolete technology, you know, most likely, or it's becoming obsolete. That knowledge becomes obsolete after four to five years. And so technologists, that workforce, we always have to be developing our skills. We have to be life learners. And um, those uh, those methods are like credentialing or showing project portfolios that as technologists, we carry these different technology skills. So when it comes to workforce, I think we're creating a lot of barriers. We're creating our own talent shortage because of traditional hiring practices requiring a four-year degree. And that's my take on it. What are yours? Preach. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree uh, 100% with that. I also think... As she pointed out, this has actually been a while that there's been a shortage. I mean, maybe as long as the Internet has been booming, right? Um, there's just increasing, increasingly more demand for technology and not enough people learning the skills to go into the field. That being said, there are some really good pushes to get people trained, especially through local programs like OTC, uh, boot, local boot camps like Codify, and then boot camps all over the U.S. that are doing good work. Um, so, yes, the businesses have to be willing to look for more specific training and know that they're going to have to teach some skills on the job because it is changing all the time. And then I also think that companies need to know, too, that because there is a talent shortage, the only solution is to then hire new people in, which means they're going to have to work with newer individuals and apprentice and train them up. Uh, because I do think as as much as they're as employers are having a hard time hiring, I think it's equally hard for those new people coming out of boot camps, uh, two-year programs and four-year programs to get a job in technology. They're struggling to do that too because employers aren't willing to hire people with little experience. And so there's going to have to be some meeting in the middle there, right? Like we're, we're going to have to help each other out. Yes. Employer as educators, how I like to think of that. I think another important uh, thing to point out when we're talking about technology and workforce and workforce development is our technical skills, they translate across all these technologies. So once we understand, you know, like a Microsoft platform, SQL database, for example, that that service, that, that knowledge that I carry, I can take that into any business that's leveraging Microsoft SQL Server database. Um, and, and help that business succeed in their technology department. And so the point that I'm making is, is that as technology talent, we're not necessarily confine, confined to the work locally. Our skill sets translate globally. 
And so there's another um, concern with, uh, with the local development of our workforce is that our technologists here in our local community, they have the ability to take their skill sets and support a global tech company or a global business or a national business that's outside of our local community. So it positions our local community businesses to compete with global global businesses or national businesses. And um, I, like I said earlier, I think we're creating a lot of barriers by our own hiring methods and it's important for our businesses locally to understand that tech talent is um, capable of taking their skill sets to a global scale and not necessarily staying local. And they don't necessarily have to leave to take it on a global scale, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, technology gets to a technologist, unless we're doing uh, racking and stacking and cabling or, you know, some sort of immersive training, like Miranda described earlier, a lot of our technology allows our workforce to be remote. Um, myself, for, for example, I've worked remote in technology for almost 10 years already. Um, so I never have to go into an office unless I'm going to intentionally go to present or something like that. And that's pretty common across all tech industry. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're talking about entry-level position, you know, to leading a business as an executive. Uh, there's a lot of remote work opportunities being a technologist. Curious, too, about the, the diversity of the workforce. So um, it was a Zipia report from last year. It said 73% of tech jobs are held by men and 62% of jobs are held by um, white employees. Um, What are some of the efforts or are there efforts locally happening to diversify the field? And then what's the practical impact um, of diversification? And then I guess the implications on the other end when you don't have diversity when tech is being created? Uh, So there's an organization called Springfield Women in Technology that I'm on the leadership of. And last year, we um, piloted our inaugural um, workplace survey to see what women and men have in common and what differences they also have in their experiences. Um, And from that report, the big takeaways that we found um, were that women are less likely to want to stay in technology for the life of their careers. Men uh, reported that they were about somewhere around 70 to 75% likely to finish their careers in tech. And women, I believe it was just over 50%. So that's quite a noticeable gap there. And some other results of the survey, I think, point to why that might be. Um, We did find a difference in compensation that was even greater than the overall U.S. average um, across all industries and all people. Um, And we looked at, uh, you know, comparing jobs uh, uh, across genders at, you know, equal placements and equal experience and equal job titles. Um, So there does appear to be an issue there, um, unfortunately. And women also reported that they felt that way, too, that they felt like they were being paid less. And that actually panned out in in the the real data, too. Another thing that we saw was that um, women feel that they have less opportunities for professional development, whether that's through trainings or being sent to conferences or just like one on one mentorship. Um, and they were also more eager to participate in professional development, that upskilling and retraining that, that Sam is talking about. So owners of tech companies, make sure that you are equally offering those professional development opportunities to, um, everyone and, you know, uh, maybe putting some special focus on the women in the workplace because, Due to that disparity and just kind of sometimes the natural social order of things, maybe they're not being thought of as much for for, for those kinds of upskills. Um, and then the last thing that we found uh, that was a difference between women and men is women did have um, quite a bit higher incidences of reported discrimination based on a protected class. It was nearly half of women reported having been discriminated against at least one time. Um, We didn't measure the scale, so that could be a small incident versus a larger incident. But there 
were definitely some issues that we found in that report. Um, and one thing that we're doing this year is all of our quarterly programming is going to be based around those three different areas that we found um, so that we can help continue the education for both businesses and tech employees to kind of empower themselves in those situations, too. Um, and then one additional thing I just want to call out that I just think is so cool uh, that SPS and I think GoCaps has led it. They do a girls tech event, uh, luncheon event, uh, where they pull, you know, 100 to 150 girls out of schools all around the area, including, um, you know, surrounding areas of Springfield. And they uh, highlight the uh, technology field and give them a free lunch and bring in people like Sim and I to, to give them like real visual role models that they can see. Um, and I just think that event is so amazing and um, will be so impactful over time if we can start to show young um, women and, um, you know, young people of color that uh, it does, there's no reason why the stats are the way they are outside of just, uh, you know, probably past. Gross history. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that we, we can and, and should change that. I think great points, Miranda. And uh, to to those points, you know, when we're talking about like future generations, it's really important for them to see people like Mike, yourself, me, and what our stories were to come up into this. Because I think the reality is technology seems like it's just like over everyone's head. But the truth is every single one of us are some form technologist, even non-techies by definition. But you know how to use your cell phone. You probably have smart home devices. Your car is probably connected to the Internet with all kinds of different technology. So the truth is, is while it seems like by these buzzword terms, we overly complicate it. The, the, it seems like the comprehension levels are just like, wow, you got to be really smart to get there. The truth is, is like, it's just a matter of getting hands on with technology. And once you get the hands on, you start to realize, oh, it's actually not as complicated as what it seems like it might be. But I really think if, if they see people like us, um, it gives them a real perspective that, oh, I can do that too. Maybe it's not as complicated because it does seem like we overly complicate it with these tech buzzwords. Um, so that, there's some closing thoughts on yours, um, specifically to your question, Christine, on what are we doing? Um, I think a few things that we've seen in workforce um, to diversify is we've gone from uh, you must be in a specific geolocation to work for our business or to do this specific job. That's evolving, especially after the COVID pandemic. And we were all kind of forced to go offline or work from home or, you know, those types of scenarios. And so with that kind of evolution, we're now able to hire remotely. And so that's offering us the opportunity to diversify our workforce even more because we're not requiring it to be just someone from this specific community. And our community might not be as diverse as, you know, other areas of the nation. So hiring remote um, is a huge opportunity to diversify a workforce. And then I think um, also just cultivating a culture within the workforce environment to kind of draw out human differences. Um, so from my point of view, it's things like employee resource groups where you can get people that have common back backgrounds or special interests aligned um, and, and, and involved in some sort of community. But having those communities of people, which are your workforce, help understand how they can influence our business strategy. So partnering these ERG groups and employee workforce, these support communities um, with executive leadership to help drive business outcomes and influence how we're developing and innovating our business or our solutions because we're getting this pool of very diverse perspectives from these employee resource groups that we're sourcing and they're helping us drive strategy and outcome to you know not only diversify our workforce but even diversify the products that we're creating so that our products are more interesting and they meet the needs of all consumers and not just a specific group of people fascinating well i'll just throw in I, I was so happy that miranda talked about uh the the study that was done that you guys did because that thing was incredible like i'm still blown away at how much work went into it and the outcomes that, that, that were seen in there absolutely love it um our company's small five people mostly white dudes um and i uh this is a topic that 
that I treat with a lot of respect and I know our entire team does. And we look forward to, you know, being inspired by, um, these diversification efforts, you know, that, that are being concentrated on and, and that will always be, um, core in our DNA as we grow. Yeah. And we've, we've got to focus on getting those diverse people trained for them to be available to hire. Um, and that's where, you know, looking at uh, those like girls high school uh, coding events is so amazing. And then also like any work that can be done to help maybe uh, single moms transition and learn coding like Codify offers a free program that I think can be could be perfect for that kind of situation and trans transitioning adults into a new career path is another way too, um, and that's also why I encourage companies to make sure they're sharing some of the burden right in training those newer people because we can we can get people trained right we could if if all our efforts to get um, more girls and women and people of color interested in technology work if they hit a barrier of companies not being willing to hire new talent then we're still in the same place so we've kind of got to all work together and i also know as as a hiring manager as a person who trains like i can't always hire a new person either so i totally get the push and pull <laughs> and I, I need to like say that to myself sometimes too but i think we need to be thinking about that so that also brought to mind the use of a, of artificial intelligence, you know, not to replace humans, but when we can't hire, how do we take our mundane tasks and make our uh, current employee workforce more efficient? And so it's not necessarily replacing anyone that's currently occupying a seat in our organization. It's leveraging AI so that those tasks get complete, but then we can reschool those humans and help innovate our business and our technology. So we've run over our time. So I want to be respectful to everybody <laughs> yes, here. Yes. Um, thank you all so much for this robust discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was really great. fun. Yeah, thank my you. pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of CEO Roundtable at sbj.net forward slash CEO Roundtable or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by David Brazil. Photography and design by SBJ's Heather Mosley and Rebecca Green. Special thanks to presenting sponsor Spencer Fain, LLP. I'm Christine Temple, and this is CEO Roundtable.